All right, what a great morning so far. I love the first Sunday of every month. Uh, I love every Sunday of every month. But the first Sunday especially is a special Sunday just because it's a youth team leading us and they are always a blessing. Uh, having the kids participate. Uh, gets y'all what a fantastic job you did on your psalm reading today. So good, Psalm 91. You guys don't need me. And then there's Don Jay. So, and I think so overwhelmed was he with the holiness of God, not that he didn't do a great job on that last announcement, because he did, but the reason that this movie is so special um, is because it basically, uh, it's a, a full-length feature film in all of the main theaters that is the story of how the Calvary Chapel movement got started. So it's really the story of our history as a church movement. Um, uh, Pastor Greg Laurie of Harvest was instrumental in getting this film made. And in fact, the Greg they talk about in the movie is him. So Kelsey Grammer, who some of us recognize, uh, he plays Chuck Smith, of course, Pastor Chuck Smith, who uh, by accident sort of started the first Calvary Chapel as these hippies were just looking for love and acceptance. And that's the story of how, uh, how Calvary Chapel was born. So we really want to be in support of this film just to send that message that there's an appetite for these kinds of things. Uh, and most importantly, this film could, be, uh, could just be used you know, to introduce a whole new generation of people to, uh, to the love of Jesus, just like, you know, happened uh, back in the 60s. So um, I think in the bulletin uh, we put, there's a, actually a website for the movie. Uh, if you're inclined, go on there. There's a prayer guide that they've developed um, that we can all participate in now in advance of the movie, just specific prayer points as we just pray for the way that God would use this film um, and uh, again, as a church, our hope is to go out on opening night or opening weekend effectively uh, and to see it as a group. If you're not able to join us then, go anytime. I think it's at any of the handful of, we're going to go to the one at the uh, Century uh, 16 right over on Shoreline. So um, if you're interested, just write your name down and that'll tell us whether we need 20 tickets or 40 tickets or four tickets or however many tickets uh, that we need. So... That's what Don Jay meant to say, and then the, the Holy Ghost just got him, and yeah, he didn't say that quite. So, um, elementary kids, you guys are dismissed, and you are headed out uh, for the day. Youth group, bless your hearts, you're in here with us. Um, we're all going to be this morning in Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you might want a Bible. Um, so raise your hand if you need a Bible, and we'll have one of the guys bring one to you. You can you Okay, so we've got a couple here. Uh, you can use the Bible on your phone if you prefer. I'm teaching out of the New King James uh, translation. So uh, if you want to follow along in that, um, that's great. So let's pray and just ask that the Lord just continue to bless what's already uh, just been a blessed morning uh, so far. So Father, we thank you, Lord, so much. Uh, we thank you for this church family, Lord, for this precious body of believers, Lord, as we gather together uh, in your name, Lord, and uh, we do stand in awe of your holiness, Lord. We thank you for everything that's been sung. We thank you for everything that's been said. Lord, we thank you um, in advance, Lord, as we look ahead expectantly to what it is that you want to, um, to minister to our hearts through your word. Lord, we pray as we do each and every time we open the Bible, Lord, we pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear, Lord, what he would say to each one of us 
as your church, Lord, each of us individually and, and to all of us uh, collectively. Bless your word, we pray, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 35 through 41. We're continuing our study right through the gospel according to Mark. And if you were listening last week, you no doubt heard me make a mistake. Well, you probably heard me make more than one mistake, but one mistake that I certainly need to correct because I said mistakenly last week that we were finishing up chapter 4 when in fact we did not finish up chapter four, but there's still one more section in this chapter, and it is an important one, such an important one that we purposely didn't finish it up last week. But the fact that only one person asked me after service why we hadn't finished the chapter like I promised we would finish the chapter, well, it simply illustrated my illustration, didn't it, from last week, that most of you just probably aren't listening to me anyway, which, which, as I said, is perfectly, that's fine with me, as long as you're listening to who? To the Lord, first and foremost. So this morning, if you're listening, we will finish Mark chapter 4 with what is both a fantastic and it's also a very familiar passage. It is a, a, a super exciting account, and I think that we're going to see it has some great insights, some wonderful applications um, for our lives. It's a text once again, kind of in this fast-moving account of Mark, that many see as sort of disconnected from the rest of what we've seen in the chapter. And, and Bible students sometimes will ask, well, why is it even included here at this point, kind of in the flow of the narrative? I believe as we work our way through it, we're going to see just the opposite. We're going to see that this event in the life of the disciples and specifically here at this moment in the ministry of Jesus, it was both divinely ordained as well as divinely included right here in the inspired record for the simple reason that in our lives as followers of Jesus, just as in we remember in our lives as students, it is always true that after the teaching comes what? comes the, well, that's not fair. The answer was on the board, right? <laughs> After the teaching always comes the testing. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So we jump back in with the disciples. We jump back in with Jesus. Remember, he just finished a series of these teachings. These teachings to the multitude, this series of parables called the kingdom parables in order to try to shed some light for them on the character of this kingdom that was coming. And remember, we started out a few weeks back with the parable of the soils. And then last week, it was the parable of the lamp and then the parable of the growing seed. And then remember, we finished up with the parable of the mustard seed. And each of which, all of these parables, we saw relating directly to the word of God as what would be the foundation of the kingdom of God and specifically how it is that we receive it and what it is that we will do with that word of God. And so now we pick up in verse 35 of chapter 4. This is now after the teaching because it says in verse 35 that on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. So at the end of that same day, Right? It had been a very full day, possibly even two days, of teaching the multitudes 
all of these parables. And remember, they're there now in the city of Capernaum. They're right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And now Jesus tells his disciples that it's time now for a little change of scenery, right? To take a little trip across the sea, or really that lake, right? To the, the region of what would be the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember we've said that the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee, it's really just a little more than about half the size of like Lake Tahoe, which we are familiar with. It's about 13 miles long at its longest point. It's maybe eight miles wide, kind of at its widest point. But at this particular point, it would have only been about five miles across over to the other side, which was the country of the Gadarenes, which we're going to talk about more when we get into chapter 5. Now, we're, we're not told specifically in the text why it was that Jesus wanted to go there, though we're going to see next time that there was a, a divine appointment that was waiting for him there. But purely from a practical perspective, we can only assume that at this point, and Mark's going to confirm this for us in just a couple verses, but at this point, Jesus must have been exhausted. Right? And he's just looking now for some relief from all of these crowds and from all of these multitudes that were constantly, we've seen, just pressing in on him. And so over there on the other side would have been a less inhabited, kind of a quieter place for him to be. And so it says in verse 36 that when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. Now remember, when we last Jesus last, he was teaching these parables to the multitudes. Remember that he had just pushed out from the shore, and he was actually using a boat kind of as his pulpit. And so here, I think what, what Mark is telling us is they just row away, right? Or maybe they hoist up the sail and they head out, they sail off. They don't even go back to the shore, not even to gather up like snacks for the, for the ride or something, right? But they just cast off with Jesus, as it says there, just as he was. And then Mark adds this interesting detail for us next, where he says that other little boats were also with him. So these, again, referring to these similar boats, right? These would have been fishing boats. And they would have been filled with people who wanted also to follow after Jesus and just sort of started tagging along wherever it was he was headed. Now, all of these boats, we're not talking about little dinghies. Like, these aren't little rowboats. But these were decent-sized fishing boats. And in fact, just as recently as 1985, there was a point when the lake level had gotten particularly low as the result of a kind of a prolonged drought, and the remains of a wooden fishing boat were discovered kind of down embedded in the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, right near uh, Magdala, just kind of to the southeast of where we would be right now. And they used, you know, radiocarbon dating, and they confirmed that this boat was very likely built in the first century, right around the time of Jesus. And so immediately they started calling it the Jesus boat. 
And it's actually on display right there even today. And of course, it's a great example of what would have been very similar to this very boat that Jesus and his disciples used for this trip. And so kind of if you picture, we have this little armada of boats or a flotilla or this whatever group of boats that are heading out on what should have been about a two-hour kind of a sunset cruise over to the other side for a little time of R&R, right? Now, that's a beautiful picture. And it's kind of what a lot of people picture that the Christian life should be like. You know, here we are just kind of sailing along with Jesus off into the sunset, right? That's the, the picture. But the reality we see in the very next verse, now some of you guys might be old enough to remember the SS Minnow, right? What happened on their three-hour tour? Well, the very same thing is going to happen here to Jesus and the disciples. Look at verse 37. Because it said, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling so just when we think we are sailing along so nicely with the Lord, what happens? A storm comes, right? And so this is a, often a, you know, a perfect picture or a, a more fitting picture, really, of the Christian walk. Because as we said, after the teaching, we so often head right into the storm. And of course, this story reveals these events surrounding this literal storm, but there's something that goes way beyond those actual events. And these are included here to, to speak to each of us about our lives today, as we so often see in the scripture. So much of the Bible, of course, is just historical narrative, right? It's just simply recording events that actually happened in history. But it, it's not written simply so that we could have a record of the past, but it's written supernaturally so that we would be able to teach us things about the present. And as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul on two different occasions tells us exactly that. Remember in writing to the church at Corinth, he said that all these things happened to them, referring to the children of Israel and their wanderings, all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition. And then in writing to the church at Rome, he said that whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so of course, as we look at just this simple storm story, God wants to really teach us something about our story. Right, about our story personally, about who Jesus is, about the things that we can expect him to do when we find ourselves caught, not in a literal storm necessarily, but in the storms of life that all of us are going to pass through at some point. Any of us who've been walking with the Lord for more than like a week, right, we can all testify that God will very often use storms really to accomplish his purpose in our lives. In fact, storms are some of his most effective tools for really moving us forward in our growth in him. So much so that God has all kinds of different storms in his arsenal, right? Very quickly, some storms we call storms of correction, right? The Lord will allow the wind to blow and he'll allow kind of the waves to rage really to get our attention, 
about something in our life. Think about Jonah's storm, right? In Jonah chapter one, where the Lord brought the storm specifically to correct his wayward servant because he had run off in the wrong direction, right? It says that the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. So that's a storm of correction, right? Other storms can simply be storms of direction, right? Where the Lord allows a storm maybe to blow us off what we think is the course we should be on just to get us on a different course that he wants us on or he needs us on. So think Paul's storm in Acts 27. Remember when Paul was on his way to Rome and we saw that it said that a tempestuous headwind arose called a Euroclidon, right? That nor'easter kind of a hurricane. And remember, it blew Paul and that ship 25 miles off course right out into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and finally shipwrecked them on that island called Malta in a place exactly where they never expected to be, and yet it was precisely where the Lord needed them to be. So we've got storms of direction, we've got those storms of correction, and there are some storms that even come into our lives, we can look back and we can see that they were actually kind of a storm of protection. Right, where the Lord will send us into a storm to protect us from something that he knows would harm us. And I think of a similar storm to this one, but not this one, but it's a storm recorded for us in John chapter 6. And you remember at that point, Jesus had just performed his most popular miracle to date. And what was that? It was the feeding of the 5,000. Boy, how the people loved that miracle, right? Because, you know, raising people from the dead, that's awesome, right? Restoring sight and hearing, that's incredible too. But free lunch, now we are talking, right, about a miracle. And you remember what happened at the end of that one. The multitudes wanted to take Jesus and they wanted to make Jesus their king and do it by force. And so Jesus said to the disciples, in effect, he says, hey, get into that boat and get out of here. It says in John 6 that when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And then we find out they went right into yet another storm. And yet in that storm, he was actually delivering these sort of baby disciples that he had at this point from what would have been this trap of fame and, and adulation much too soon than what they were prepared for. So this was a storm of protection. And so the point is we've got all these different kinds of storms that can come into our lives, right? Correction or direction or protection, each is a slightly different tool in God's toolbox. But all of these storms, as we're gonna see in this storm today, they're all storms of perfection because they help to perfect our faith and our trust in Jesus. Because what they so often do is they bring us to the end of ourselves and they really force us to cry out for him. Because all of these storms, though they're different kinds of storms, they all have one thing in common in our lives. And that is that all storms are scary storms. Notice what Paul says that this storm, he says it was a great windstorm. He says that the waves were beating 
into the boat. He says that the boat was already filling like up with water, right? So this was a ship sinking kind of a storm. And this again is kind of where some skeptics will sometimes take issue with these storm accounts that we find in the Gospels. They say, well, you know, these have to just be myths and fables because there's no way that a storm like that could have taken place on this Sea of Galilee, which isn't even a sea, it's really just a lake. And it's true, right? The Sea of Galilee isn't a sea the way that we would think of a sea, but it's a good-sized body of water and it's a very unique body of water because it just happens to be the lowest freshwater body of water on the planet. So the Sea of Galilee sits at 700 feet below sea level and the only thing lower is what? It's the Dead Sea which is twice as low at about 1400 feet below sea level. But the Sea of Galilee, here you've got this low-lying lake that is surrounded on all sides by this mountainous area. It's right at the head, we know, of that whole Jordan River Valley rift. And so what happens is you've got these winds that come down from the mountains, sometimes the, the snowy mountains, Mount Hermon up above there to the north, and the winds just come whipping down and you've got this cool air from the mountains that hits the relatively hot air of the lake itself and all of a sudden that Sea of Galilee can turn into a very violent body of water in a very, very short period of time. Many historical records of storms producing nine and 10 foot kinds of waves. You don't need to be a surfer to know that those are big waves. Notice what Mark doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, you know, it came through and, and it started to sprinkle a little and, you know, there was a slight wind and the, the water started getting a little choppy, right? And of course, he doesn't say that because very few of the storms that come into our lives are like that. This was a storm that made all of these seasoned fishermen who were on this boat. Remember, easily probably half of the disciples at this point, they had spent their lives out on these boats and out on this lake. And yet we're going to see in the next verse, these men all thought that they were about to die. Just peek into verse 38. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And so this particular event is intended really to speak this encouragement into our lives in the situation in our lives where we think we are going to die, right? Where we are really not going to survive this trial. We're not going to make it through this particular journey that we're on. And I think just right here, it's important for us to realize that as Christians, that there can be storms that come into our lives that are so tempestuous and so forceful, they're so sudden and they are so hurricane-like that they really can overwhelm us completely to the point where we are just taking on water and we're just adrift and sort of unable to regain our bearings. And so these aren't just simply storms. They're not just regular trials. They're not even just deep trials. These are the kind of unfathomable, unspeakable trials that overwhelm us completely. When we get to that point where we just don't feel like we can continue, 
right? You think about the inexplicable loss of a child or the loss of a beloved spouse or the, the kind of a deep violation of trust in a, in a relationship maybe where we've made ourselves completely vulnerable. You think about the, the pain and the betrayal that so often can occur in a divorce or, or a, a health problem where our bodies are just breaking down, right? Certainly those who find themselves in some sort of a chronic kind of a debilitating pain, right? Or, or any combination of any of these kinds of things. But these are the things that sort of come on us suddenly and the, the winds blow fiercely and the water comes in quickly when we are not simply sure we're going to survive. And these storms do come to us as Christians and they come to all of us as Christians. I loved in 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul says that he says, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. And that God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with the testing, he will also provide the way out so you may be able to endure it. And I think that that's an important verse because so often we can have this tendency in the middle of our own storm to think that, you know, nobody goes through these same kind of storms or these same kind of challenges that we do. And I believe that this is precisely why we have this picture that Mark has provided for us in just that little detail back there in 36 where he talks about all of the other little boats those other little boats that were now out there with them and all of a sudden were caught up now in this very same terrifying and life-threatening storm. And the message is that these are storms that are common to all of us as we are just trying to follow Jesus. And it's in those times that we so often wonder, where is Jesus? Right, Just as the disciples did next, look at verse 38. Again, it says, but he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Okay, wait, asleep on a pillow? Right now, what a picture. Think about this. Now, I don't know how you might picture that sort of a picture, but it might help to understand that that word pillow it's not talking about some kind of a pillow that a princess would nap on, right? But the, the word Mark uses specifically refers to like, a, like a, a leather pillow like a sailor would sit on as they rowed the boat, right? So it's not this puffy, fancy pillow. And yet, nonetheless, Jesus is still back there asleep on this thing. Now, we talked about the fact that no doubt he was tired, probably more likely exhausted from all of the healing and the delivering of demons and the teaching and all of the ministry. And so he finally gets on this boat and boy, he is out. And somehow now he is sleeping through all of this. Now, if you're anything like me, and I'm just being honest with you, sometimes I wonder in the midst of my storms, how in the world could Jesus be sleeping through this one? Right, like where in the world is he? Because this is like an all hands on deck, I don't think we're gonna survive this trial kind of a storm. Jesus, how can you sleep through this? And yet the reason that he can is very simple. 
And the reason that Jesus can seemingly sleep through these things is that what usually panics me does not panic him in the slightest. Because he already knows exactly how this is all going to work out. Remember, it was Jesus who had told these guys to get into this stinking boat in the first place. So unlike Jonah who had run right out of the will of God, these disciples were right in the middle of the will of God. So this storm is what they got as a result of their obedience, right? And so I think we've heard it, but we need to hear it again, right? Because here we are, different people on a different day, involved in every different kind of storm, but there are some storms, right? Big storms, great wind storms. There are some of these storms that we're going to find ourselves even while we are right in the middle of God's will. And I, and I don't know if you're like me, I don't know why I need to be continually reminded of that, but I seem to have this kind of a Garden of Eden kind of idea that as long as I'm in the middle of the will of God, that somehow it's just going to be smooth sailing. Smooth sailing. Thank you, you're still here. I'll be here all week. And yet it's not, right? It's not smooth sailing. There are great storms that come to us when we are right in the midst of God's will. And very often, they are an important part of God's will for us. Even as the, the boat is filling with water, even as Jesus is asleep there on the pillow, way back there in the back of the boat. But I think as we think about him, what a picture, I think, and what a lesson for our lives because Jesus was resting and he was confident in the Father's plan and the Father's purpose. He knew that even though this storm had come, he knew that the Father had a plan and he knew that this storm was not going to be the end of his story. So he can rest and he can trust right here in the midst of the storm. And really, Jesus is just doing the thing that if the disciples had really understood at this point who he was, right? Jesus is just doing the thing that they could have done and should have done, which is just taken a nap and just enjoyed the ride, right? The, the Lord promised this through the prophet Isaiah. He said that you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And the truth for our lives is that that's absolutely true. And, and so often, the, my enjoyment of the journey or the, the peace that I'm going to experience on the journey, even in the midst of a storm, right? my peace on the journey is directly proportional to how much I am just trusting in Jesus and how much I'm resting in Jesus instead like the disciple, instead of being upset with Jesus, that he's not as anxious and as worried as I am. You know, again, I'm probably telling you, but sometimes I'd like to see Jesus maybe just kind of pace the deck a little bit, right? Maybe just kind of wring his hands because somehow at least on a surface level, right, on a super fleshy level, maybe it would just kind of validate my sense of panic, to see that Jesus was even concerned about this, and yet, of course, he just never does that, does he? He just never does that at all, because at times like that, 
He always knows what he knows and he trusts what he trusts in this plan and this purpose that he, speaking of storms, wow, it's coming down out there. I'm just going to trust that God has a purpose in this, right? And like Jesus, right, he's going to walk in the thing that we don't know and the thing that the disciples still hadn't learned. So the disciples go and they're going to wake Jesus up now. Now, I don't know how they went about this, right? Think about these disciples like, okay, uh, I don't want to wake him up. You wake him up, right? Can you picture Peter like, Andrew, how about you wake him up, right? Send your little brother. Or all of them like, hey, John, he really likes you, right? The disciple who, how about you go wake him up, right? So how do you wake God up? Well, I don't know. I don't know if you just have to kind of go wiggle his foot at the end of the bed, or do you have to just give him a good kind of a shove on the shoulders, or do you pull that little princess pillow out from underneath him? Well, notice in the text, it doesn't say they had to do any of those things. And I love this. So ignore the rain and tune back in because you're going to like this. Notice what Mark tells us at the end of verse 38. It says that they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And the reason I think this is great is because the wind hadn't woken him, right? The waves hadn't woken him, nor had the rocking of the boat as they were tossed back and forth on the waves, not even the water that was quickly coming in over the sides of the boat, none of that had woken Jesus up. He had slept through all of that, but the moment the disciples cry out to him, he's awake instantly. And I think that there's such a beautiful picture here because Jesus in so many ways, he's just like that brand new mom, right? Through in her exhaustion, she can sleep through the house coming down on top of her. And yet the, that baby makes the slightest whimper and instantly she's awake. Instantly she's awake to attend to the needs of that baby and to calm the cries of that baby's anxious heart. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do next. Look what we read next in verse 39. It says, then he arose and he rebuked the wind. We could use a little of that right about now, Jesus. But it says, he arose and rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Notice Jesus didn't just quiet the wind and calmed the sea, what does it say he did? He rebuked the wind and the sea. And what's so interesting about this, it's interesting what Jesus says and it's interesting the way Mark records it because the Greek word he specifically uses that's translated as be still is literally Jesus saying be muzzled. And it's precisely the same phrase. It's almost a, a, a technical phrase. It's the same command that we have seen him give when he's addressed demons and demanded that they relinquish their power and come out of a person that they had possessed. Remember how he said that to them? Be muzzled and come out of him. And I think the language here at least leads us to consider that this storm may have actually been stirred up by Satan. 
right? Demonic forces as some storms in our lives may be as well. Now quickly, we know from the book of Job, which I know all of you who are going through dwell, we just recently listened to that, we know that Satan does have some limited control over the elements as the Lord allows him. Remember, Satan was allowed by God to torment Job in order to just reveal the heart of Job. And that included, it says that Satan brought down the fire of God that fell from heaven, so probably lightning, right, and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, right? Started some kind of a wildfire. Then in verse 19, it's followed that it says a great wind came from across the wilderness, Right? Most possibly a tornado or something like that. And that wind, we know, destroyed Job's eldest son's home, killing all of the rest of Job's children in one fell swoop. And yet the point is that if this fire from heaven and if this great wind were somehow caused by Satan himself, they were still ultimately under the control of God and Satan was serving God and the purposes of God by doing it. So just in this situation, here's Satan who may very well have thought that he could take Jesus out, right? Kill him off in this storm on the sea, on the sea, just trying to destroy him before he could fulfill this mission that he came to fulfill. You remember back in Luke 4, we had that little account of the way that Satan stirred up the people of Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. What did they try to do? They tried to push Jesus over a cliff to kill him. Well, that hadn't worked, and this isn't going to work either. Because Satan had no power at all to take the life of the Son of God because it had to be laid down voluntarily by Jesus himself on the cross. So God had a plan for Jesus that couldn't be thwarted by Satan or by his storm, just as he has a plan for you that no storm of Satan can stop. And just as he has a purpose in allowing this storm that was way bigger than anything Satan could drum up, and that purpose was to perfect the growing faith of the disciples. So remember this. In your life, in my life, we need to remember that there is no storm that comes to us that has not first passed through the hands of our loving Heavenly Father, and he has allowed that storm for a purpose to accomplish a work in us. Now I know that none of us love these verses, but we all are familiar with them, right? James chapter one, where he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Or let's just go ahead and substitute the word storms, right? Count it all joy when you fall into various storms, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the Lord is actively using these things to grow us up to maturity in our faith. And yet somehow, for some reason, when we find ourselves in the midst of a storm or when we can tell we've been led even into a storm by God himself, the first thing somehow that we do is we convince ourselves that God has abandoned us. Right? Or we tell ourselves that God doesn't care about us, just like the disciples said here, right? Don't you even care that we're going to die? 
And I wish I could stand here and say that I've never said that, but I have. Because I have been through some storms in my life that I thought were going to end my life. If not physically, at least emotionally or spiritually. And if you haven't been through that kind of a storm, then God bless you. But your storm is coming. I promise you that. How do I know it? Because I know God loves you. And God loves you way too much to leave you the way you are. Because there are things that we learn during storms that we can only learn during storms. Right? We don't want to admit that that's true, but you know that it's true, right? We say, you know, Lord, really, I promise I can learn this truth in the, I'll learn it out in the meadow, right? Or I'll just learn it in the sunshine of this beautiful day, but it just doesn't work that way, does it? Rarely do we ever think, well, you know, I can see clearly as I enter into this storm, I can see that this is simply God's higher purpose for me and that he's perfecting my faith. You know, we just don't say those kinds of things, at least not at first, although we should, because we should know and we should trust that God is working through these things, though we don't always like the way that he goes about it. And look at the way that Jesus now goes about it. Watch the way he deals with these disciples there in their storm. It says in verse 40, But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? And how is it that you have no faith? So Jesus had just rebuked the storm. Now what did he do? He just rebuked the disciples. He asks them these two really probing questions, right, very closely connected. He rebukes them both for being afraid, and he rebukes them for not having more faith. Now, this is a rebuke, and I don't think it was a mean-spirited rebuke. I don't think that Jesus was, like, scolding them. I read it, I get the sense that he was more like saying, come on, guys, what's the matter with you? Like, here I am, I'm right here with you in this boat. Like, how come you're not trusting me? Think about it. They had already seen, just in these first four short chapters, right, this short time that they, they've already seen Jesus do so many extraordinary kinds of things. They've seen him restore sight to the blind. They've seen him heal the lame. They've seen him cleanse lepers. They have also seen him raise the dead. They have seen him do things that no human being had ever done. Certainly they were right here in the process of embracing the fact that he is the Messiah, and yet they still obviously didn't get it, and so Jesus calls them out on it, and he rebukes them. And I will be very honest with you again. There's a lot of times in my Christian life, and I, I can only assume this is true of you, but a lot of times when I had a crisis of faith in my life or where I come up against some difficulty or a trial or a storm in my life, most of the time what I really feel I need from God the most is an encouragement of my faith, right? Not a rebuke for my lack of faith. Right? I want to be encouraged by him in my faith. What I want him to do, I just want him to come by his Holy Spirit and kind of put his big Holy Spirit arms around me, right? And just remind me, you know, everything's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. And I want that kind of reassurance from him. That's how I would like it to happen. And yet there are those times, and especially if we've walked with the Lord for a length of time, if we've been through a few of these things, and we ought to know better 
than to allow our faith to collapse every time something big happens. And sometimes it's at those times that the Lord will rebuke us. He will turn to kind of rebuking our faith. And I know there are times in my own life, just like with the disciples here, you know, my faith is faltering and I'm heading into that very same emotion right where these guys are, that debilitating fear, right? And I think, oh, I just need a big old group hug from the Lord to get through it. And the Lord doesn't give that to me. Instead, he comes in and he lovingly but firmly rebukes me for my lack of faith. And what does it do? It takes that loving rebuke to bring me back to my senses. And you guys know that I'm right. And so maybe if that's you this morning, maybe it'll do that very thing for you. Because why was it that they really and truly deserved a rebuke here? So how did their fear in the storm translate into this lack of faith? Of course they were overcome with fear. Again, we've all faced these different kind of trials that produce this fear and this same emotion. And we're crying out to God, why don't you care? And we're going to sink and we're all going to die. And he comes in the middle of it and he asks us, why are you so fearful? Well, why am I so fearful, Lord? Look at the waves. Look at this little boat you've got me in. Look at the size of this storm that you've brought. Of course I feel the way I feel. And it can almost seem like a cruel question, can't it? but he still asks it of them. And then he doesn't stop there. He goes and he asks that second question, really to rebuke their faith. So what does the one have to do anything with the other? Right? What does their fear have to do with this lack of faith? Well, it has everything to do with it. Because it was very simple. Now wake back up, you guys, and look back up with me at verse 35. The very first thing, that he had said to them at the outset of this whole journey. What did he say? Verse 35, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, right, where all the words of Jesus are written in red, then you'll see that those words are written in red. And those words are worth underlining because they are the whole point of this particular event being included in the Gospels, because those words constitute nothing less than what? The Word of God. Those words are a promise from God to them that they would reach the other side. Jesus did not say in verse 35, let's give it a shot. He didn't say, let's see what happens. He didn't say, maybe we'll get half halfway and kind of hope for the best. Let's hope a big storm doesn't suddenly whip up on the lake. Right? He could have said those things, right? But he didn't say any of those things. And when Jesus says to us that we are going to cross over to the other side, guess what? We are going to cross over to the other side, come hell or high water right, as the old saying, right, come storm, come trial, come whatever, and they should have received that as the word of God and given it that deep entry into the soil of their hearts because remember the context of what was just happening here literally minutes before they started this little cruise. 
Right? We've watched these very same disciples who have listened as Jesus taught these multiple parables to the multitudes and then explained all of these parables to these disciples, all of these parables that all dealt with what? How we receive the word of God. What kind of entry do we allow that seed of the word of God to really have in the soil of our hearts? So that was the teaching, this was the testing, and the disciples had just failed Faith 101. They had failed to remember anything that Jesus had just said to them. So he says, why are you so fearful and why do you have no faith? And, and sometimes I just think we need the Lord to speak to us with just that kind of clarity to wake us up to the importance of walking by faith and really believing his promises, especially while that storm is raging around us. You know, here we all are this morning, and I don't know exactly what's going on in your life. You don't know what's going on in my life. We don't know what kind of storms we're each in the midst of. But how many of us are sitting here this morning in just this kind of circumstance, and we're crying out to the Lord, and we're saying, Lord, would you give me a word in the middle of all this? I really need just to hear from you right now. Where are you? Are you asleep or something? And yet, he has already given us so many words, hasn't he? He's already given us so many promises for when we find ourselves precisely in these times of trial. And he may just speak right to our hearts and say, where is your faith? I gave you my word. I just need you to remember what I said to you. And we say, oh, but the waves and the wind and the the storm and the water and So here's the question. How do we keep from repeating this very same pattern? Well, I think Paul gives us some great insight. His second letter to the church of Corinth. You remember the part where Paul says that we need to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Here's the way this works, right? Here's this terrible storm that everybody is now fully convinced they are going to perish as a result of, right? So there's this circumstance that has suddenly arisen, a major circumstance, a life-threatening circumstance that rises up in our lives and it now exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So now we've got all of these thoughts and we've got these fears on the one hand But Jesus had said, let us go to the other side of the lake, right? So you've got the word of God on the other hand. And the Bible is very clear that when the circumstances in our life ever look like they are going to violate whatever promise God has given to us in his word, it's his word that we are to believe. Even in spite of what we can see even in spite of all of these fears, even in spite of all of those things that are now just constantly running through our heads. And then to take those thoughts and capture them, right? Not let them run around anymore just doing laps and laps around our heads, but now bring them into captivity, right? Bring them into subjection and put them under the authority of the word of God. Now, I know that's easier said than done, but it can be done. 
it can be done. And it's one of the reasons why we have this passage in front of us. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Okay, spoiler alert. If you haven't read ahead, then close your ears. Next time, we're going to see, I can safely say, they are going to get to the other side of this sea. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 says, Then they came to the other side of the sea. So that is not in doubt. And the point is, it was never in doubt. And it is still never in doubt related to any promise that we're given in the word of God. And you can read every promise now in the word of God in the very same way that you would now read, let us now cross over to the other side. It is going to come to pass. And I think we've probably all experienced these situations in our lives where we somehow convince ourselves, you know, it is so sad that my life and this particular situation, this is going to be the first time in the history of mankind that this promise of God has failed. Because I know that God is not going to come through for me. And we get to that place, and then what happens? Well, a little time goes by, right? However much faith we do or we don't have, but a little time goes by and we get to the other side, right? That promise is that the, the same promise that we doubted is finally fully fulfilled, whatever that promise might be, and we realize at that point, standing back on the other side, that the only thing that was ever actually in jeopardy, right, the only thing that's ever actually determined is whether I trust or don't trust in the Lord is how much I enjoy that trip across to the other side. The promises of God are always at work in the lives of us as Christians, even when we're in the midst of the storm, even when we think Jesus is asleep, in every moment of the nitty-gritty and the daily of our lives, because God has made this promise to us to get us to the other side, and nothing is going to prevent that promise from coming to pass. It doesn't always come to pass the way that we wish that it would, or the way that we hope that it would, but all of those promises are going to be fulfilled that is never in doubt. And if it was in doubt in our minds, it was never in doubt whatsoever at all in the mind of God. Right? That's the journey, right? It's between that, that where we are here and the fulfillment of the promise. This is where it kind of gets scary. And here, I understand none of us live our, most of us, we don't live our lives at the beginning point of the promise or at the destination of the promise, where do we live our lives? We live it all right here in the middle, right? Somewhere in the middle on this journey and in all of the storms that come to us as a part of that, complete with all the wind and with all the waves and all of these things, right? But the story here is recorded here with these disciples because their experience is exactly what we experience in our life. God is going to get us from our Capernaum over to our Gadara. Right? Whatever that means in terms of his plan for your life, but very often it's going to be on a path that we don't anticipate. Right? All these storms of correction and direction and protection, but all of them being used by the Lord really to perfect our faith and to teach us things that we could never, ever learn outside of these storms. Because look at what Mark tells us in the, in the next to last verse of our text today. We're going to go long today, and it's probably Donjay's fault. But So just after Jesus, 
right? He's just gently rebuked his disciples for their fearful and their faithless reaction. He's rebuked them. He's rebuked the storm. It says in verse 41, and they feared exceedingly. And they said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I love this because even though the disciples just failed the test, Jesus just gave them the answer key for all of the rest of the tests that would come because he just revealed his deity to them as he calmed that storm for them. He just shown them his true identity as the Son of God and as God the Son. Here they are. They're always continuing to grow in their knowledge of him, right? What he can do and how he can. But this storm lesson, I mean, this was just a huge jump forward in really understanding who he is and what he is. And, you know, in the ancient world, in the ancient mind, the ancients believed that the sea was totally untamable except by God. And of course, they were right. Right? We live in a world today that certainly it's more advanced technologically, it's more advanced scientifically, and yet the truth is, we still have no control over the sea. And if you've ever been out on a rough sea on any sized boat, right, whether it's a dinghy or a fishing boat or a cruise ship, you know it's pretty scary. And you also know in that moment that there is no one who's going to be able to deal with that. Because the ancients were absolutely right. Only God can calm the sea. Only God can calm the storm. And there, there's a beautiful passage in Psalm 107, which is a psalm of thanksgiving to the Lord. It, it's Psalm 107. This is a little long, but I promise you it's worth every word. So just sit back and enjoy it or or either one right it says this it says those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep for he commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea they mount up to the heavens they go down again to the depths their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful work to the children of men. Let them exalt him in the assembly of people and praise him in the company of the elders. And I think that this is such a wonderful, powerful, worthwhile passage in that it reminds us, I think, of what is a huge part of the lesson here for the disciples and for us is that we need in the midst of the storm we need to look outside of ourselves for the salvation from the storm. Because here Jesus had just solved a problem that only he could solve for the disciples. And notice, it was a problem that must have hit these guys right where they must have thought they were the strongest. Right, these are fishermen. They've spent their lives out on this lake in other storms, and yet this storm... Right? In this storm, they needed Jesus. 
Because not only do storms teach us about Jesus, but they also teach us about ourselves. And first and foremost, they just remind us how fragile we really are and how powerless we really are. Right? Whenever we find ourselves in a storm, whatever kind of a storm it is, right, we find ourselves in these circumstances that are just way beyond us. They are so completely perplexing and we don't know how to handle what's in front of us or how to navigate this situation. And it makes us stop and think, wow, I thought I was so smart. Right? Here I thought I knew it all. Here I thought I had it all together. Here I thought I could figure it all out. And suddenly this storm has reminded me that I don't know anything. This storm, has, this storm is way beyond me. It's beyond my intellect. It's beyond... Intellect, intellect. Intellect is like inter intellect and understanding, which comes next, right? It's beyond my money. It's beyond any authority that I have. It's reminded me that I need to look beyond myself and I need to look to Jesus. And when I do that, right, when I finally do that, what is it that I find? I find that he actually does have the power to calm the storm. And after a few of these storms, what I find is that there is actually no storm that he can't calm. And suddenly now there's perspective back in my life. Right? It's just like that sun that comes out after the storm and it just reveals things now in a whole new light. Right? Because these storms that God allows in our life, they perfect our faith, but they also perfect our perspective because they put everything back into perspective, right, related to who he is and what he can do, at least until what? The next door comes and we forget it all over again, right? I wish I could say that I could stand up here and say that I'm totally fearless whenever I see the clouds, you know, but I'm not, right? Even though I have been through a lot of storms, the Lord has delivered me out of and through so many storms, Right? But whenever it's, it's when I start to see those clouds brewing, right? And when I start to feel that, that fear start welling up, that's the point where I just need to pause and try to regain my perspective. Try to regain that faith-informed, experience-informed perspective to take those fears and those thoughts back into captivity and put them back underneath what the Word of God has promised me. I have to refocus and I have to remember, you know what? Jesus is right here in this boat with me, just like he was on the Sea of Galilee. He's with me now and I know that he at any moment he could speak to the wind and he could immediately calm the sea and I know that he will do those things in his timing. He'll do them in his timing and eventually I will make it over to the other side because he promised that I would. Right? And so for all of us, he can and he will do those things for us because he's given these promises to us. Now, we're going to celebrate communion today as we, as we close out in worship. So team, you guys can come back up. As we do celebrate communion today, there's so much for us to reflect on, um, you know, including these promises of God that he's given us, which are all backed up for us by what? by the cross, right? It's the cross that proves to us 
that these promises are, are real to us and that they're for us. So as we take time this morning, the, the team's going to start to play. You can come forward. You can get the elements. Um, just take them back to your seat. Take some time just between you and the Lord and just think about all the promises he's given you and think about the sacrifice that he made on our behalf to make those promises true in our lives. Amen. If you need prayer for stuff during communion, um, Pastor Jeff is over here and his wife Anne is over there. Please feel free to come up and to ask for prayer. Um, you could probably just reach out to your neighbor and ask them to pray for you. Uh, most importantly, just spend this time between you and the Lord and, uh, and let's worship. Amen. So Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for these promises that truly help us to navigate, Lord, and give us hope in the midst of these different storms that come into our lives, Lord, this promise that you've made that we will get to the other side, Lord, and you, you demonstrated all these promises for us as you poured out your life and your love for us on the cross, and so we remember that now. We ask your blessing on this time in Jesus' name, amen.